All right, so when you think about being diverted, so when you think about some diversions that happen in your life, just as a show of hands, how many people immediately think of something good? You think of being diverted, how many people think of a good thing? All right, a few of us maybe. All right, how many people think of a bad thing? Think of like me being diverted as a bad thing. Especially if you're driving on the road, like that's the last thing that you want to do is be diverted. I remember the very first time that Tiffany and I were going up north. We had lived in Ireland for about two months, and so we're making our way up, up north, and we're going there, and everything is going fine until we cross into Northern Ireland, and then there's just like this massive road closure. And like, we don't really know what to do and the GPS is not really working. Like we're in that like dead zone where you can't really connect to the internet and stuff is just going bad and we don't know, like we're trying to figure out where to go and, and the detours through all these like little farm paths and these farm roads and, and like, I'm like we, I don't feel like we should be driving on, on dirt roads right now. And so finally we find a petrol station and we stop and we're like, Tiffany, I, I, I say, Tiffany, you want to go ask for directions? Uh, because you know, I'm a man, you know how that went. And she's like, yeah, sure, I'll go ask for directions. And she goes in and she asks, and mind you, we had only lived in Ireland for about two months, and people in the north talk a little bit different. Uh, and, and so like, she goes in and was like, and so she comes, she comes back and it's like, so where, where do we go? She's like, I have no idea what they said. <laughs> I, think she's, I think they said turn left, or it could have been turn right, or, or straight, and like, well, that's helpful. I'll go ask. And so I go in and ask. And like, I'm like, are you speaking English? Like, I have no idea what was happening. I come out and be like, I think we should go straight. I have no idea. And so we just end up like driving around. We finally, eventually, somehow get Wi-Fi or get internet service. We get our GPS hooked back up. But we finally get where we're going. We are hours late. And when we get there, we were supposed to like walk around this little village in this waterside town. It was going to be really nice, completely dark, couldn't see anything. We were supposed to eat when we got there. All the cafes are closed. Not only that, but the people that we were supposed to meet, they have already left. And so when we get to where we're supposed to be meeting, we're sitting at a gate for a couple of hours until they get back. It was terrible. And so when you think about diversions, maybe that's the thing that you think of. You think of something that's not so good. You think of something that's bad. When you think of being diverted, maybe it's this anxiety, this, this ugliness that begins to bubble up inside of you, this sense of doom or this sense of dread. Maybe that's what you think. But there's also like where, where some diversions, they can, they can be a good thing. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a story about a pastor was telling about a hospital visit that he was going on. And so he's on the way to go visit some, somebody from his church in the hospital. And as he's going, like, he has to go all the way through downtown. And this was terrible. It was going to be like an hour drive through downtown. And, and so he goes and he's making it, finally gets, navigates all the downtown traffic, almost gets to the hospital, and then his phone rings. And it's his secretary. He's like, hey, just so you know, the lady that you're going to see, she's just been transferred to another hospital on the other side of town. So he had to turn around and he had to drive all the way back through downtown to the other side of town to get to the hospital. And as you can tell, as you could think, like this is already two hours in now and he is just frustrated, he's aggravated, and I can sympathize, like I don't really have time for this, I have a sermon to write, I have things to do, two hours in the car is not on my to-do list, but you know, he's a Christian. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to pray about this. God, help me to have the right heart because it's not the lady's fault. And so he, he prays and he gets calmed down a little bit. And then he remembers, hey, I have, a, I have a buddy from university who works in this hospital. 
And so I'll just send him a message, and, and maybe we can meet up. I hadn't seen him in a while. And so he sends the guy the message, and, and they, after his hospital visit, they meet up for a coffee, and, and they, they start talking together, and they're just having a good time. And they're, you know, talking about life, how's things going. And he starts sharing with his friend who works in the hospital, yeah, I hadn't been sleeping real well. Or, or I haven't just been feeling great. And all of a sudden, within 15 minutes, the pastor is on a, uh, he's on a treadmill doing a stress test. Four hours later, he is heading into surgery because he has an, a lad, an LAD, I don't know if you're familiar with this, artery blockage. That artery is known as the widow maker, completely blocked. And his friend who was telling the story said, if you would have came to me a month later, you would not have been coming to me. Like this would have been it. And so quite literally, this diversion where the lady got changed to a different hospital quite literally changed his life. It saved his life. And so what we're going to see in this series, we're looking at some diversions that people have when they experience Jesus. And so they have this choice of like one way or the other, people are going to see Jesus. They're going to have this experience and their lives are going to be diverted. Their lives are going to be changed. Their lives are going to head in a certain direction. And here's what I believe 100% is the best thing that any of us can experience is the diversion of meeting Jesus. I believe this with everything in me. The best thing that any of us can experience is, is meeting Jesus. And our lives begin to head in a completely different direction. Maybe our hopes and our dreams and our plans that we had, we were heading in this direction. Then we met Jesus. Then this diversion happens and he changes our course. He changes our trajectory and everything, our path goes a completely different direction. And I believe this with everything in me. And so what we're going to see in this series, we're going to see how people see Jesus and their lives are, are diverted. We're going to look at King Herod. We're going to look at Mary and Joseph. We're going to look at, at the shepherds. We're going to look at the wise men and see how their lives change. What begins to happen when they meet Jesus? Regardless of how you feel about a diversion with Jesus, whether you believe it's the best thing that could happen or the worst thing that can happen, regardless of how you feel, here's the reality. As it is impossible to experience Jesus and remain the same. It's impossible. Because when we meet Jesus, everything in our lives, it changes. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. And he, he's discussing, he's talking about how we can't say Jesus is just a good moral teacher. But I, listen to what he says about Jesus. He says this, he says, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something else. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So when we experience Jesus, our lives are never going to be the same. We are either going to spend the rest of our lives rejecting him and running from him, knowing that he is who he's, this is God and I don't believe that, I'm not going to accept that, and we're going to spend the rest of our lives turning away from him, or we're going to spend the rest of our lives pursuing him, running towards him and falling at his feet in worship. Here's the thing, friends, as we survey the scriptures, there is no, there's no neutral. There's no middle ground. There's no, there's no yes, maybe kind of in. It's all or nothing. And so what we say about Jesus, it's impossible for us to experience him and remain the same. And so as we see with, with King Herod, he chooses, to, he, he chooses to reject Jesus. 
to, to spend his life running away from him. And so today we're going to be studying about, about King Herod. And I'm sure that every single one of you, when you got here this morning, when you heard it was an Advent sermon, I'm sure every single one of you were like, I really hope we talk about the guy who murdered all the babies. I hope that's the first Sunday of Advent that we talk about this horrible human being. If that was you, you're in luck. You're also probably do a psych evaluation, by, by the way, probably. Um, but like, I don't know if that's where you were, but like, that's what we're going to talk about today. So in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 18 through, through or 16 through 18. We'll, we'll read this, and we're going to save a little bit of this for when we talk about the Magi, uh, but let's just read a little bit about Herod. Starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About, this, about that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, and everyone in, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I may go worship him too. Now, if this is your first time reading the Christmas story, he's lying. He doesn't want to go find Jesus and worship him too. That's not actually what's going to happen here. No, if we flip to verse 16, we see what begins to happen. So angel shows up. The, the wise men do find Jesus and they give him gifts and they worship him. And the angel shows up and it's like, hey, don't go back to Herod. And this is what else we find in verse 16 through 18. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled that what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are dead. So, here we get introduced to Herod. We get introduced to the Magi too, but mainly let's, let's focus in on Herod. So first of all, let's just answer the, the simple question, historically speaking, who is Herod? So Herod, he, he, he was raised Jewish, but he has the backing of, of the Romans. And so he was, he was beloved by Rome, and so he's actually referred to as a, as a Roman Jew. And so he has been serving as the, the king of the area for 32 years. An interesting connection between our series and Haggai and, and our series we're talking about Herod right now is if you guys remember, there's a part of this, this passage of Haggai where God says, I will shake the, uh, there will bring this earthquake and there will be riches that will come to this temple. This is the guy. This is the Herod who actually pours in money, who pours in riches into the, for the second temple. And so he's Herod the Great, if you, you're familiar with him, this is him. And so, like, he's one of the people who's helped rebuild this second temple. But as we read through the story about Herod, he is a terrible human being. Like, as we read through this, like, he is, he is a mess. He is not a good guy. 
And so, like I said, this has been 32 years that he reigns in Judah. This is towards the very end of his reign. And he is disliked so much, and he knows that the Jews hate him so much, and that he wants to, he wants like, they want him out of power so badly that as we read through history, what Herod actually did was he gathered up all the noblemen of Judah. He held them in a prison and he ordered that they be executed on the day that he died so that there would actually be mourning on the day of his death. Now, thankfully, his sister caught wind of this and he released, she released them before they were executed. But this is, this is, this is the guy we're talking about. This is Herod, not the top notch fella. Like not this guy that many of us are like, I really like that guy. And for some of us, like this is this history, it seems pointless and it maybe seems a little unnecessary, but I think it's really significant for us to remember that Herod is a real person. This isn't just some fantasy. This isn't just some fairy tale that's happening. These are real people that we're seeing here. And so in verse 3, it says this. It says, Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this and everyone in Jerusalem with him. And so the message about Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to come. There's this new king that is coming. And Herod, he is deeply disturbed. As we read through Herod's history, throughout his life, throughout his political career, he has dealt with coups, he has dealt with uprising or insurrections, so supposed, at least he thought that's what they were, throughout his life, especially through his family. As we read his historical record, he has had two of his sons killed, he, he executes his wife, he executes his mother-in-law because he thinks that they are coming for his throne. And so Herod is, he's a mess. And like, he's on his deathbed at this point. He's towards the end of his life. He is mentally disturbed. His, his body is falling apart, but he is a, he is a savage human being. He is angry. He is vindictive. And, and all of Jerusalem, they are, they are distressed with him. Not because they like Herod so much. Not because they're like, oh no, our king is going to be replaced. No, they're distressed because Herod's reputation precedes him. And they are terrified about what he might do next. And so this is what we see with Herod. And here's what happens. We see in verse 16, he was furious when he realized that he had been outwitted. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the, the wise men's report from the star's first appearance. So he has all the boys who possibly could have been the king he has them killed. Now, I don't want to underplay what is happening here because this is terrible. But just to kind of help us understand the, the reality of the situation, what we're talking about, we're, we're not talking about hundreds of kids. As we read through history, as we read through mortality rates, and we read through what was happening during this time, it's, it's about 20, about 20 kids. Still terrible, right? But Bethlehem's a small place, so it's about 20 people. And as you read through Herod's history, we have a hard time finding this account. And many scholars believe is because this wouldn't even move the radar on who Herod was. Like this was just like normal. This is not actually that bad for the things that, that Herod would have done. And so 20 kids are put to death because he's there. All this is to say Jesus being the king of the Jews did not sit well with Herod. It didn't sit well with him. And, and so they show up. And Jesus said, they say, hey, there's this king of the Jews, and, Jer and Herod, is, he's, not, he's not okay with that. Has anybody seen the movie uh, um, Robin Hood? The, the kid Robin Hood, the, the animated one? 
There's part of this movie, as I was watching you through this clip this week, where there's Prince John. And if you know the story, like Prince John is, is kind of the fill-in king, whereas King Richard has gone off. And Prince John is, there's this, in this moment, he's riding in this royal carriage. And he's talking to a snake, which is just weird, but that's Sir Hiss is his name. And they're having this conversation. And he had just gone, Prince John has just gone to collect taxes. And he's in the, he's in the carriage, taxes, taxes. And he's really excited. And he goes and he takes the crown, that King Richard's crown, and he puts it on his head. And I don't know if you guys are weird and remember this, but like, <coughs> excuse me. It's too big for his head and it falls down. And so he pulls it up and he like straightens out his ears a little bit. So it stays on his head. And then he says like, this crown gives me the feeling of power, power, power. My accent is terrible. Like I'm trying to mock what he's saying, but you get the gist of what he's saying. And then Sir Hiss says, like the snake would. Uh, But he says like, well, King Richard's crown seats so beautifully on your noble head, doesn't it? And, and uh, Prince John is like, ah, yeah, King Richard, I told you to never mention my brother's name. All right, you got to watch it to get the accents. I, I, I'm terrible at that. But, but here's the thing. It's in this moment where King Richard, he, or Prince, Prince John knows he's not the king. He's playing around. He, he's, he's, he's a fraud. He's a fake. He likes to pretend that he's king, but the reality is he's not. He's not the king, and he knows it. He knows someday that the real king is going to show up. The real king is going to come, and he's going to make all things right. He's going to put things back the way that he's supposed to do. He's going to be relegated to being a prince, not the king. Like He knows this day is coming. Anybody read the, the Narnia series? Maybe the, maybe the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Like we see this playing out. There's this moment where the white witch walks around and he, she, she thinks she's big and bad. She thinks it's going to stay winter forever, but she knows that the, that the real king of Narnia is coming, that the real ruler of Narnia is going to come and Aslan is going to come and it is going to be summer again. And like he's going to overthrow her rule. He's going to overthrow her reign. And, and the white witch can pretend and she can cling to this power, but eventually the real king is going to show up. And we see this playing out with Herod. We see this story because the reality is like King Herod's kingdom, his rule and his reign are going to be overthrown. He is not the true king. Now, this looks completely different and it's going to be completely different than Herod thinks it's going to be. But at the end of the day, Herod's rule and reign, it is coming to an end. Whereas Jesus's rule and reign will never end. And I just want us to see these words that begin to describe Herod here, or these actions that we see, like he's disturbed, he's deceptive, he's murderous, he's furious, he's a killer, he's brutal. Like these are the words that are used in the text to describe Herod. And I'm willing to bet that is not the words that we want describing us. That's not what we want said about us. But what we're going to see in just a little bit is like, if we are not careful, it can end up being us. And so why? Why would Herod react the way that he does? There's this diversion where he has this encounter with Jesus and he chooses to reject him rather than to follow him. And so why does he react this way? I mean, I mean, sure, it goes against everything that we know and be said about Herod's character. But I think deep down, I think deep down Herod knows. He knows he's not the forever king. He knows that he is not the Messiah. 
I think deep down he knows this and he just wants to cling to this power that he has, he has left. He wasn't the true king of the Jews. Let's read verses four through eight again. Here's what Matthew writes. He says, speaking of Herod, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. For, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For the ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, when, and he learned from, the, from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I may go worship him too. So we see in this text that, that Herod, he has, he has a couple of different meetings. And, and I don't know if you guys have, have experienced this. I'm sure all of us have. Just a raise of hand. Has anyone ever experienced one of those moments where this meeting could have been an email? Anybody experienced this? Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is they're like mugs. They're t-shirts. They're, I, a lot of people apparently are giving these mugs to their boss, which I just think is awesome. Like that meeting could have been an email. Uh, and so this week I was just reading an article about six signs that your meeting could have been an email. Number one, you're simply, you're asking a simple question. Number two, you're making a general announcement. Number three, you want feedback because the reality is when too many people in a room, feedback really doesn't seem to happen. Number four, you just had a meeting about the same topic. Number five, you didn't have time to prepare. And number six was you've already, your team has already had back-to-back -back meetings or you have had back-to-back -back meetings. And as we read through the text, like Herod like violates like almost all of these like suggestions because he goes and he has this meeting with the religious leaders and then he turns around and he has the meeting with the wise men. And as we read through this, like I think there's really something to all the effort that he is putting in here. Like, sure, he is doing his due diligence, but there is something so much bigger and something so much greater that's playing out here. I want you to catch these phrases. It said, he called a meeting of the religious leaders. And then in verse 7, it says, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. This phrase that is being translated, he called a meeting, is actually a Greek word that Matthew uses a lot. And what we're going to see is almost always when Matthew uses this word, it's about religious leaders who are gathering together, who are plotting the demise of Jesus. So six times in the last three chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew uses this phrase about, about these meetings that are being drawn to, to plot the death of Jesus. Same thing here, right? So we're seeing this playing out. So Matthew is like, hey, remember that? From the very beginning, this is what people have been doing. They've been getting together. They've been plotting the demise of Jesus and towards the end of Jesus's life. This is what they're doing. They're getting together to plot the demise of Jesus. This is to foreshadow the, the coming, the, the, what is going to, to come for us. And here's the thing. We see this with the leading priest. They answer the question correctly, right? Like they know the scriptures. They know the text, but they don't do anything. You guys see that? If you would, have, you would have thought, if the leading priest, if the leading teachers of the religious law, if they knew where the Messiah was going to be born, wouldn't you think that they would go and like, I don't know, show up to go worship this, this king that they've been waiting for? <coughs> 
This, this Messiah that they have memorized 600 passages, 600 prophecies about him, when he shows up, wouldn't you think that they would be like, hey, maybe we should make the trip? They do nothing. They just give an answer. And here's the thing, like we can get really caught here. We can get caught in this just knowing the right things where we don't do the right thing. We don't do what we should do. Now, their response, sure, it isn't quite as bad as Herod's. But it's not good. They're unconcerned, unbothered, unmoved by the reality of Jesus. I wonder if any of us have ever been there. We know about him. We're just unconcerned, unmoved, unbothered by him. And it doesn't force us into action. And here's the thing. As we begin to read through this story, there's a really interesting, uh, interesting detail that pops up in verse 19. Let's read verses 19 and 20 so we can get this. When Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. You guys catch that in verse 19? Just very matter-of-factly. When Herod died. Here's the thing. As we track this through the historical account, we are, we are talking between verses 18 and 19, two to three years. Two to three years. That's it. Herod was willing to have 20 kids murdered for two or three years left on the throne. Catch that? Like, he is willing to do all of these things. He's willing to do these horrible things to protect his throne, to sit on the throne another 700 to 1,000 days. That's it. I mean, his rule and his reign are all, the only thing that matters. And he is willing to do these terrible and these disgusting and these horrible things for two to three years. And he knows, like he has to know, like his body is falling apart. Like he, he knows that he's dying, but he doesn't care because this kingdom and this throne is the only thing that matters to him. So he is willing to do whatever it takes, cling to it at any cost for just a little bit longer on the throne. When, when I was a kid, I don't know if you guys ever did this. When, when you guys watched movies or shows when you were younger, did you ever pick which character you were in the movie or show? Kind of put yourself in there. I, I did this. My brother and I, we, my brother Matthew and I, we shared a room together. And we had a TV in our room, so sometimes we would watch, we would watch movies or we'd watch shows. We used to watch this show called The Dukes of Hazard. And in the Dukes of Hazard, there's two brothers, Luke Duke, or their, their cousins, sorry, Luke Duke and Bo Duke. And as we were watching this show, I was always Luke Duke and Matthew was Bo Duke. Not because of the names, but the reason was that Bo Duke was the one who always drove the General Lee. And he was the one who always did the best jumps and the best craziest things with the car. And so he, and since Matthew was older, he was Bo Duke and I was Luke Duke. That was fine with me because Luke Duke got to do the hood slide. And I was like, cool, I'm doing that. I, a lot, lot more difficult than you think. Uh, but like, that, that was, we chose this. And he would kill me if he knew I was sharing this part of the story. Um, but he was mean to me as a kid, so he deserves this. Uh, so we, uh, we used to watch this, this movie called Our Lips Are Sealed. Yes, the Mary-Kate and Ashley movie, Our Lips Are Sealed. Yeah. All right, so we used to watch this in our room. And... In this movie, Mary-Kate and Ashley, they get in witness protection. So they see this crime, and they get in wit witness protection program. 
And I honestly can't believe how much of this movie I remember. But like, we go and we watch it, and, and they, go to, they go to Sydney, Australia. And they're in witness protection, and they run and they meet these two guys, these two boys. And Matthew and I used to debate, okay, who's dating Ashley today? Who's dating Mary-Kate? And so like, we were deciding, it was like, I want that one, I want this one. And so we would choose which one of the guys that we were in the movie. And almost always, I wanted to, I don't remember, I think it was Mary-Kate. I was like, that's, that's my girl. And so there, I had this trump card, because there was part of this movie where one of the guys who, who liked Mary-Kate, he rode a roller coaster. And my brother's afraid of roller coasters. Like, oh, you can't do that, pal. That's got to be me. And so, like, we would always put ourselves into, I really hope he actually listens to this. But, like, we would always, we would always put ourselves into these movies, into these shows. And, oh, that's, that's who I am. That's who I am. But one thing I realize is we never picked the bad guys. Like, I was ne- we were never the, the guy who were chasing Luke Duke and Bo Duke. We were never the people who committed the crime that, that forced Mary-Kate and Ashley to run to Australia. We were always the, the good guys, right? And I think sometimes when we read through scriptures, we kind of do the same thing, right? So we read a story like this. Like, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we're being really, like, humble and honest, maybe we can say, okay, I, I can see myself as the, re- the religious leaders, right? Like, sure, sometimes in my life I've been unconcerned, unmoved by, by the things of Jesus, Maybe that's sometimes, like, if we're real honest, maybe we'll put ourselves there. But for the most part, we're like, well, I'm the Magi, right? I'm going to go, and I'm going to bring Jesus some gifts. I'm going to bow down and worship him. Like, for the most part, like, that's, that's the people that we're going to pick. How many people, when they read the story, are like, I'm King Herod. That's me. I don't think many of us think that, right? But here's the reality that makes this passage so uncomfortable. Is I actually think we are more like King Herod than many of us would want to believe, than many of us want to admit. Let me just ask you a question. I want you to think about this. What kingdom are you trying to protect? What kingdom are you trying to protect? Because oftentimes we we can be like King Herod. We can cling so tightly to or attempt to keep hold on this fake kingdom, this false kingdom. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to hold that kingdom up, to keep that kingdom. Maybe it's a career goal. And maybe you have this, this career, maybe you have this promotion in sight and you don't care who you have to step on. You don't care who you have to get fired. You don't care who you have to cut down in order to get to this career goal. And you are going to cling to that no matter what. Or maybe it's this financial place that you want in your life. You want to get here financially, and so you don't care what you have to do as long as you get there. Sure, you may be on vacation with your family, but if I take this phone call, I can make a little extra money. And, or if I go into the office just this one time, then, then I can make a little extra money. And, and so you start to you cling to this desire. You cling to this above anything else. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to protect that kingdom. Maybe it's this goal of being married. Like, and you, you're, you're, maybe you think you're running out of time and you're like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to date whoever I can. And like, you just start making terrible decisions because these are the desires, these dreams that you have and people who surround you be like, Hey, are you sure you push them away? Like, no, you're get away from me because this is a kingdom that I am clinging to. Maybe it's this, the status of comfortable life where you just want to be comfortable. And so you have some friends who are going through some hard times, like, I can't have that in my life because your mess is uncomfortable, so come back to me when you get yourself all together. Maybe we don't say that, but we just start distancing ourselves because this is the kingdom that we begin to cling to. 
Maybe it's just this, this vibe or this perception that we have and we want of ourselves on social media or about our friends or around our friends. And we know deep down that our lives are falling apart. We know deep down that we are a mess. We know deep down that we are hurting, but smile, I'm gonna take a selfie. Everything's good, hashtag blessed. And like you refuse to, to, renow, to, to, to say the reality of what's happening. Because we cling so tightly to these false kingdoms. We cling so tightly to them and we're willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to that kingdom. Anybody been there? I know I have. And that's why I don't like the story, right? Because I can see myself. I can see Herod in myself. Sure, I don't murder 20 kids, but man, we were just like him. And so, so Herod... When his kingdom is threatened, he is deeply disturbed. Maybe just ask yourself, what is it that makes you deeply disturbed? What is it that makes you feel this way? What is it that makes you deeply disturbed? And here's the real kicker of this entire story. (laughs) Jesus never wanted Herod's throne. He He wanted Herod's heart. You guys catch that? Jesus had no interest for taking Herod's throne. What Herod wanted, what Jesus wanted was Herod's heart. (laughs) He could have kept it. He could have kept his throne. If Jesus was in his heart, he would have ruled differently and he would have reigned differently. His life would have looked at a different direction. But Jesus had no concern. He didn't care about the throne. That's not what Jesus wanted. And Herod, he was willing to commit horrible things to protect his throne that Jesus never cared about. So the question for us, are we going to spend our lives clinging to this fake kingdom or are we going to surrender it to the King of Jesus? Surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. And I think as we read through this text, what Matthew is setting up for us, Matthew was really well versed in the Old Testament. And there should be a story that begins to remind us here as we read through the death of these children. And somehow Jesus miraculously escapes. You guys remember another story? Maybe in the book of Exodus, where there's a bunch of children who are slain, and somehow Moses miraculously escapes. And so Matthew is drawing these, these two stories together. He's like, think about that story, the way that Moses was saved, because God had this, this exodus that he was going to free his people. And Jesus, God is in Jesus, and Jesus, we see that, that Jesus is going to bring a greater exodus. That he's going to lead us out of a different kind of slavery and a greater slavery. So Jesus, being God, he is a better king in every single way. And there's this interesting thing that we begin to see in verses 13 through 15. I want us to catch this. It says this. It says, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee from Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. From the very beginning, Jesus is a a baby. He's vulnerable. He's, He's helpless. From the very start, he is being protected by divine intervention. 
we're, we're seeing the divinity of Jesus already playing out. That Jesus, God is really, and the angel is showing up and be like, you need to go because you are going to protect him. He is going to be protected because there's so much more that it's going to do. And it's not very hard at all for us to see the differences in the kingdoms. Herod was willing to take lives to protect the, his kingdom. Jesus laid down his life for the sake of the kingdom, to bring other people into the kingdom. And us who know the Christmas story well, like we just know like the Christmas story is it's so unassuming. It's so simple, especially for a king like Jesus is. Like it just seems so simple. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the kingdom. And there's a little phrase that Matthew uses in, in chapter 2 that he uses to bookend his, his entire gospel. So if we read chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? Catch that phrase, king of the Jews. If we flip to the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on the cross. And listen to what he says, Matthew 27, verse 37. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the what? The king of the Jews. From start to finish, Jesus is king. From the very start to the end of the story of the scriptures, Jesus is king. And his rule and his reign is not going to lead to a throne, but to a cross. And his death is not going to lead to a de decayed body, but to, but, to an but to an empty grave and a resurrected body. And his kingdom and his rule and his reign is not going to end at his death, but rather it is going to expand to the ends of the earth. Jesus is king. Herod is not. Jesus is king. We are not. So are we going to accept Jesus as our Lord? Are we going to accept the lordship of Jesus? Are we going to allow him to divert our lives in the direction that he wants us to go? Or are we going to spend the rest of our lives rejecting him, turning away from him, pushing him away? What's it going to be? When I, when I was a, a teenager, 13, 14 years old, one of my friends at church, his name was, his name was Adam, Adam Bright. And Adam was, Adam was being baptized. And at this time in his life, like Adam's father, Frank, was, was being like overrun by cancer. Like he, he, was, he was, when he walks, you saw him, like I wasn't very old, but you could just say that's a, that's a dead man walking. You could just tell. And so as Adam was going to, to be baptized, Frank hadn't been to church for months because of how sick he was and how bad his body had been decaying, coming apart. But as Adam goes to get ready to get baptized, I hear the door of the church open. And I, and I look just to see who it is, and I, I see Frank slowly making his way up the steps. <coughs> Dead man walking, really. And after every step, I see him sit there just a few seconds to catch his breath and take another step. And all the while, Adam's up front, and he's doing his good confession and confessing that Jesus is Lord, but I can't take my eyes off of Frank. I feel like I should be watching the baptism. I feel like I should be watching what's happening, but I just can't stop watching what's happening over here. And Frank comes, and he, he sits down. And he is so sick that the blood is just running out of his nose and he can't stop it. His wife is just holding a towel, catching the blood under his nose because his son is getting baptized. And there is no way that he is going to miss it. 
And he is putting it all on and he is there. And I just remember as a 13 or 14 year old being like, that's it. That's how we respond to the kingdom. That's what, it's, that's what it's like. That's how we should act. When we see God doing something, when we see God, when Jesus shows up and the, he diverts our lives, that's our response. As we do anything, we do everything to make sure that we are a part of it. Friends, what's it going to be? Are you going to allow Jesus to divert your life? Are you going to let go of these false kingdoms that we've been holding tight? going to let go of those and truly chase after Jesus? Because the reality is, Jesus doesn't want our throne. He wants our heart. He wants to be the king of our hearts. And that will, will change everything the way that we live. Let me pray for us. Father, God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the way that you love us. The way that you've just You've given your life for us. God, I thank you for this better kingdom that Jesus has. One that's of, of sacrifice and not of greed. One that's of, of living for, for the needs of other people and not just of ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that you will reveal to us today those false kingdoms, if there are any that we are clinging on to. Lord, I just pray that we will let them go. And, Lord, that we will truly follow after you. God, will allow you to be the Lord of our lives. Allow you to be our boss. Every, every day, every step of the way. Lord, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came and he, he lived and that he died for us and he saved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.